I think when people see a wild animal, it doesn't maybe net register in their mind of like, okay, I'm going to interact with this animal for five to 10 minutes, but the impacts may be for an entire day or a month, or, you know, this could impact this animal for the rest of its life. Hi, I'm Reed Singh, and this is Adventure Travel with Troop Outside, a podcast where we interview adventurers, local guides, and outdoor industry experts to uncover the best travel spots and human-powered adventures from around the globe. Before we jump in, I have a quick favor to ask you, that if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It would truly mean a lot. Um, so yeah, Wyoming Wildlife Advocates, we're, we're a small organization. Uh, we are only, uh, I'm the executive director and only employees. So, so we're small but mighty. Uh, we've been around for, for five years now and um, we're kind of originally started, um, a precipitating event happened where a wolf was killed in Grand Teton National Park in one of the park holdings. And um, this was while wolves were still protected by the Endangered Species Act in Wyoming. And uh, that brought up the issue of who has uh, wildlife management rights on inholdings in the park. And um, we actually just found out this week that um, we had lost our appeal. We lost the original case that we brought um, to make sure that the park had management of those inholdings. Uh, but we lost that case and then we lost our appeal this week, which was a little disappointing, but um, mm. a, definitely a fight worth having and um, something to bring up. Grand Teton National Park is a really unique park in that it was created very late. Uh, it wasn't a, a full national park until 1950. And there were a lot of concessions that were made. You know, there's, there's an airport inside the park. Um, there's hunting that goes on in the park in the fall for elk. Uh, there's a lot of private inholdings in the park, and there's still, uh, you know, a, a, quite a bit of, of private land that is within the park boundaries. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's just a unique park that way. And and uh, wow. here we see again there was just, that was just kind of another example of of some of the jurisdictional you know issues that come up in right. in which is, <laughs> Wyoming is a patchwork of <laughs> federal agencies and state agencies. So um, it's there's always conflict I feel like that happens between who's got jurisdiction over what. Sure and you guys came in to take a role to clear those things up and see who's responsible and who really yeah exactly and, and just really finished. yeah and to be an advocate for the wildlife um, within the park uh, you know it, it, it's a unique park in that we, we do have wolves and grizzly bears um, and black bears and mountain lions and and coyotes and you know then the full suite of ungulates too moose and elk and deer so it's it's a really unique park in that way that we have these amazing wildlife resources but it's also a management challenge because um, the park is only 350,000 acres which sounds big but the the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is about 22 million acres together and so there's a lot of uh, national forest land you know that surrounds the parks and that um then even within there you have you know small state parcels and and things like that so yeah so we kind of came along and 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 really started taking up like these orphan issues that really nobody else was talking about at the time um you know issues of, of grizzly bear hunting and uh wolf hunting in the in wyoming and um and also chronic wasting disease which is really threatening our elk herds here so uh, kind of taking on the issues that were more controversial and other people maybe didn't feel comfortable 
um, sure. you know, speaking out against. And and we really try try you know we try to remain small, nimble, uh, adaptive, and kind of just ready to take on issues as as they come up. Um, but yeah, our our main focus is really just preventing trophy hunting of grizzlies and wolves, and also making sure that our elk, which is you know a big part of the biomass uh, here right. in the Yellowstone ecosystem, is protected, um, especially from this chronic wasting and disease, which is could really devastate our elk herds. Wow. So that's uh, are you focused in specific geographical areas, more in uh, the national parks or all of Wyoming? Uh, I'm assuming most of the animals are around the parks and that's where your highest concentration is in and around. the. Yeah, I mean, we are a statewide organization, but just because, yes, you're right. There's most of the wildlife is concentrated within the parks. Like that's kind of the core area and then the surrounding national forest and BLM. And um, but yeah, we take on issues. Uh, You know, there's there's Thunder Basin National Grassland in the eastern part of the state. Um, there's other national monuments around the state. So um, we, don't, we don't just focus on public lands though. We're just, we're also focused on, you know, wildlife wherever it may be in Wyoming. Got it. And thank you. That's a, such an amazing thing that you're taking on. So what are some of the biggest challenges? Uh, maybe we can break it down by, by species because it's probably not the same for all of them. Maybe uh, grizzly bear, uh, elk and wolves. What are some of the main threats to their existence right now that you guys are fighting for? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously Wyoming has a history of oil and gas development and that's, you know, one of the main, it's the biggest contributor to the economy, um, mm-hmm. which when you have species like sage grouse and pronghorn that are reliant upon sagebrush habitat, um, that oil and gas development can be really disruptive to them. and. And so um, we're always keeping an eye on those things. Um, there are a lot of wildlife focused organizations in the state, but they focus mostly on ungulates. Uh, so elk and, and deer. Um, okay. this, those are like kind of the more valued species in Wyoming, I would say, because they do hold monetary value for hunting licenses. Uh, whereas sure. like your carnivores, you know, your grizzly bears and, and wolves and mountain lions and things like that are less valued, I would say. Um, just in general, I, you know, I, from this, from a state perspective. So yeah. um, we really are here to like wildlife management and in views of wildlife is really shifting in the United States. You know, we kind of, as westward expansion was happening, people had a, a much more um, doministic view of wildlife. Like, mm-hmm. you know, humans are over wildlife and, and we're over the natural world and, and, we're going to come in and kind of like tame this, you know, uh, this wild place that is the West. But now we're starting to see this shift where people are starting to realize that people are part of ecosystems. And, um, you know, we are just on the same level as those wildlife species. Like we all have a, a right to exist here. And yeah. how can we coexist more together rather than just pushing a species aside? So, um, and one of the big things that does come up a lot, we are, we are absolutely not an anti-hunting organization. Um, we have supporters, we have a, a board member who's a hunter. And if you, you know, hunting elk and deer meat is a great way to feed your family um, in a very economical way. It's lean meat, it's healthy, it hasn't been raised on a factory farm. We're all for that. But when it comes to hunting species like grizzly bears and coyotes and wolves, we, they just, they're not ungulates. They're not herding animals. They need to be treated in a different way. And there's sort of this like ingrained 
thought process that like hunting, you know, conservation cannot happen without hunting. And what yeah. we're finding, like when you have predator populations or carnivore populations, if you don't hunt them, they will self-regulate. Like there, there is this, I think, myth that people have that they will just eat every, you know, every elk and deer that's out there. That's just not true. Right. Like we, we've seen like living proof of this. And if you look at like a place like Isle Royale, where you have moose and wolves together, like the wolves went extinct over time, yeah. you know, like on the island again, they were extirpated. Um, That's because the deer and elk aren't pumped full of sodium and sugar, so they're not as addictive as <laughs> our, our human food. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you know, we we just there you there is really no reason to hunt grizzly bears or wolves. There's not. Yeah. We don't need to control their populations. They will do that on their own. And you know, certainly we can reduce conflicts using other methods. Um, because you know, it's naive to think that there's not going to be conflicts as wolves and bears spread out in their, in their habitat sure. in your native area. But, um, we, you know, we, as humans are, we should be the smarter species and, right. and use our, our big brains to help us solve these problems. You know, a bear is going to be a bear, no matter what it's driven by its instincts. And, um, we, we have the power to do things differently. And so, you know, we really should try to do that if we can and make it yeah. so that, you know, it, that we can live alongside them rather than like, you know, just wiping them out everywhere we go. And how does the Wyoming, um, I guess maybe state, uh, governments think about the tourism dollars that come in because of Yellowstone and expanding the areas that people are coming to visit instead of crowding everyone in because, if it's purely financially driven, I would think that, uh, you know, expanding more on the tourism and using uh, these tourism dollars to grow areas and expanding and like, is that helping? Is that helping change the mindset of the locals or the government that this is something to be preserved and expanded? Or is that still a struggle? It's still a struggle. Um, one of the things about Wyoming is that the state was built upon oil and gas development and uh, ranching. And so those are the two big industries that, um, and, and actually ranching is no longer a really large economic contributor to the state. However, um, they still hold a lot of political power and sure. financial power. Uh, oil and gas obviously has a lot of financial backing and a lot of money and political power behind them. Um, it, you know, that's kind of been our argument is is that we have this like golden goose kind of situation. And, you know, Jackson is looked at in a very, if you go anywhere else in Wyoming and you say you're from Jackson, yeah. you're, you're going to be met with a kind of a, a bit of a different vibe than a if different you, than you know, Cody. From, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're kind of seen as the New York or, or hoity toity area of Wyoming and that we're not really Wyomingites. However, it, the prosperity that has been enjoyed here can be extended to other parts in the state. You know, like Lander is a great Absolutely. place and Sheridan. I mean, if, if, there were, if there was a robust wolf population in either of those places, there would be wolf yeah. watchers there, you know? So right. um, people, yeah, I mean, look at the amount of people that come to Yellowstone National Park. I mean, we're talking 7 million visitors a year between Yellowstone and Grand Teton. And the number one thing that people want to see is a grizzly bear and wolves. I mean, you know, that's, right. that's driving this, the, the tourism here. And so the state is just really 
still stuck in kind of the, you know, this very like 1800s mindset of that, like, you know, we still have ranching here and that's our mainstay. And, and, you know, there's still just this really deep seated cultural hatred of native carnivores like wolves and bears. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just going to be a generational shift over time that will have to occur to really help people to understand how beneficial these, these animals are to the ecosystems and how, how beneficial they can be to the economies too, of small towns, especially. Yeah, we almost need to look at um, like Africa in a way and think of Wyoming as safaris. I mean, imagine opening up some of those grasslands during the antelope uh, migration and seeing the wolf hunts going on that naturally did before and being able to, uh, and we have it all. We have all of it here. It's just, you know, there's so much of it in private hands. If there was a way to try to shift that economy back into the private, you know, where the private landowners, they, thrive from the tourist economy and you know maybe those are just some of the initiatives that they just take time and uh, people like you are taking Mm -hmm. that uh, that message and hopefully you know changing some minds so what are some specific uh types of advocacy examples that you could give us that you know you're doing on a on a daily basis or weekly or annual um campaigns and stuff Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the big things we do is actually protest against trophy hunting. Um, you know, they're, they're really, we're, we're in the 21st century now, and we know that there are animals have intrinsic value and that animals also have value to the ecosystem and that, you know, every piece and part of the ecosystem is necessary. And to have people on the landscape who are just killing these animals just to hang a head on their wall or a hide on the floor is, we're just beyond that at this point, you know, as, as right. a human species and as people who care about the environment and care about this planet that, you know, we're living on. And, and we know that we, whatever happens to animals will eventually happens to people too. Um, yeah. You know, we're all connected and, and we know that. So um, to getting rid of kind of, once again, just like cultural uh, myths and misinformation, uh, you know, that's another thing we do is just try to educate a lot. There's so many myths and, and misinformation out there, especially about wolves. It, it's funny because grizzly bears, people tend to like grizzly bears in general, like even mm-hmm. ranchers, you know, can learn to kind of like get along with them and appreciate them on the landscape. But when it comes to wolves, it is a, it is the most contentious hot button issue you can ever, like if you go, if you walked into Casper, you know, into a bar in Casper and, you know, yelled, I love wolves. <laughs> you're going to be like stoned to death. So yeah. um, it's still just a really, it, that's a hard thing to overcome in the state is just the stigma against the species. Um, they're seen as, you know, these bloodthirsty killers that just kill for fun and you know, they'll wipe out all the elk and things like that. And it, there is no, there's zero evidence to back any of that up and yeah. that it's just still kind of like hanging out there. Um so we do spend a lot of time educating the public about um, the threats that wildlife are facing. And, and the fact that like, you know, a lot of people come to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and see this place as like a wildlife paradise. I mean, it looks on the surface, like, yeah, totally healthy functioning ecosystems. But if you scratch a little, little bit beyond the surface and you look a little deeper, you'll see that there are actually some bigger problems here that um, the ecosystems are having and, and mm-hmm. that, you know, some of our, like our elk population is actually pretty sick. Um, our, and our deer population is declining as well. So 
You know, we mm. have these issues that are kind of going on and um, people just don't know about them, uh, you know, so, so we spend a lot of time educating and then also, you know, talking to elected officials and trying to get them to either introduce legislation or, um, you know, when, when state agencies have public comment opportunities, we let the public know that so they can comment on those things as well. And then we always send comments in. Um, I, I'm a little bit disheartened at this point with that process uh, because so much of the time we spend a lot of time writing public comments and right. it's not that they're ignored. It's just, um, they're sort of like a predetermined outcome a lot of times on those things. And, and I would just say, if anybody is like, if you're interested in getting involved, like handwriting a letter or like actually getting on the phone and talking to a legislator is probably, those are probably like the two best ways to reach uh, an elected official. A form okay. letter or like a petition just doesn't, it's, I, it may be different in other states, but here in Wyoming, the legislators have made it very clear that they don't want a form letter. They don't want to see just a signature on a list. They want right. to hear okay. from the people. That's a really great um, call to action because that was, um, I had that as one of my takeaways is like, what can we do if you're listening to this and you're feeling empowered to take action? What are some of the things they could do? And could that be done by even as a visitor to the area? Um, anyone? Or do you have to be a Wyoming resident to be able to take action? I assume, you know, letting them know opinion in a handwritten letter, it doesn't matter where it's coming from, as long as it's honest and, uh, and thoughtful, that it still makes an impact. Yeah, I would say that a handwritten letter from anywhere would be great, um, especially if you say that, you know, you come to the state and spend spend your tourist dollars here and that you're right. supportive of, you know, the local economies. Um, most people drive to Wyoming, you know, it's we don't we do have one airport in Jackson, but getting to Yellowstone, most people are driving and so they're driving across to Wyoming and yep. spending money in state, you know, Lander and Casper and Cheyenne and places Dale, along the way. Yeah. Exactly. So um yeah, I mean, you do have power, even if as a non-resident, um, obviously residents are going to be listened to, I, I guess would have a little bit more weight uh, behind what they're saying. So sure. if you are a Wyoming resident and you are listening to this, it would be great to contact the governor, you know, like write him a letter or um, your local legislator and just let them know how you feel and that you wanna see protection for uh, some of our animals, especially our native carnivores. Um, which don't have much protection at this point. And for those listening that think that, you know, uh, the impact of wolves, I've, I've found that visiting Yellowstone, the wolf project that's been happening there, it's been so incredible to see the number of species that it impacts, uh, that the elk stop overgrazing around the river and the trees grow, you know, larger and they create shade. So there's cooler spots in the water and then all of a sudden the fish come back that weren't there before. So it's such a larger cycle than just the wolf and how it exactly a, I mean the right balance. Yeah, we really that trophic cascade really is uh, important in ecosystems and we we've seen now like what it looks like to not have it there and you yeah. know to have that keystone species there and then to have them back again and to see the effects of it. And I say that anybody that loves elk should love wolves too because they keep herds healthier and more robust. Um, Doug Smith, one of the main researchers in Yellowstone, who's worked on wolves for decades now, has seen that. You know, he said when he first started doing research in Yellowstone, 
the he would see elk limping and you know would see kind of sickly elk on the landscape and now you, he just doesn't see that they get picked off you know those are the ones that are not going to make it that's just part yeah. of natural selection so you know it's it, well, having wolves present with elk is really important to keep those herds uh to you know to be keep disease at bay and to make sure that like the healthiest ones are the ones that are passing on their genetics not be couch potato elk exactly there's <laughs> no you cannot be a couch potato elk you won't, <laughs> you won't make it very long <laughs> we could use a couple of wolves of the human species <laughs> exactly <laughs> well thank you and then uh you know to find more information uh wyomingwildlifeadvocates.org is that the best place to stay up to date on all the initiatives that you guys are fighting and um things that you're yeah, working no. on so that you know, the audience could also take action on those, your priorities and be aligned. Sure. Yeah. Check out um, our website and our Facebook and Instagram. I usually post pretty frequently on those sites um, just to keep, you know, about current news that's going on um, here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and across Wyoming as well. Yeah. I really like your Instagram. It was uh, really informative and I love what you guys are doing with um, interviewing people and getting their feedback. It was really cool. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, we love to hear from people, people, you know, wildlife management and really wildlife advocacy is not about wildlife. It's about people. <laughs> um, you know, and that's something that surprised me is being a wildlife advocate is that, you know, I mean, I, of course I went to school, you know, and studied biology and environmental science and, <laughs> and I never thought I would be involved in like social sciences. Um, but as right. I was then getting more and more deeper into this field, I, it actually, the psychology and the social sciences behind decisions that people make and actions that people take um, are really more and more intriguing to me because that's what's really driving either, you know, harm to wildlife or what makes people want to help wildlife as well. Yeah, and that's where you can make the the true impact is by understanding the the people side of things. And I, it's so funny that you say that is we work with uh, stray dogs in India. We've been doing, my wife and I, when we go visit, we do a lot of work there. And it made me, it almost makes me realize that there's not a stray dog problem. It's a, it's a human problem. And these exactly. are human issues that we have to solve. The dogs aren't just a byproduct of, you know, the way our lifestyle is and our behaviors are towards them. So it's funny to see that it's the exactly. same with wildlife. Uh, yeah, wildlife mm -hmm. just wants to exist, right? So it's just how they're we just going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you know, we humans are the ones that change the game on them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you one thing that's been kind of concerning to me lately is human interaction with wildlife in national parks. Is that still a growing concern, or uh, are you guys doing anything with that, or is that all up to the national park to? Uh, you know, I'm just seeing like concerning YouTube videos where somebody tries to ride a buffalo and it gets 6 million views and all of a sudden it's, a, you know, the top ranking video on uh, YouTube. Like, how is that, um, whether it's the social media impact and or increased visitation to the park, is that a concern to wildlife disturbing them? Or when you consider it across all the different things that it's, you know, just gets blown up on social media and it's not as big of an issue. Yeah, you know, um, the park service spends an enormous amount of time trying to educate visitors that come to the park about yeah. being safe around wildlife. And 
being respectful in your interactions with wildlife. Um, unfortunately, I mean, we still have people that feed bears sometimes in Grand Teton National Park, and they have to be usually euthanized because of that. The people, um, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, unfortunately, the bears are the ones that don't pay the price. Um, yeah. You know, when it comes to bison, usually the humans are the ones that do pay the price because yeah. there's not a lot that can hurt a 2,000 pound bison. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and the interesting thing that like has been really noted is that it's you, you it, I don't, people are still going to do it, you know, it, and I think that Yellowstone, I've heard from like the superintendent up there, I mean, he's frustrated. It's like, how much can we tell people, you know, don't sit on the bison, don't touch the bison, and yet people are still going to do it. And so I think they're kind of at a loss a little bit um, mm -hmm. of, you know, how do we mitigate this risk when we have wild animals and people, but at the same time, like, how are we, I, you know, you can't force it down people's throats as much as you try. I, and I think yeah. some of it has to do with the you know, fact that we're like becoming a more of an urbanized society and people just don't have as much like chance to interact with wildlife um, as much as they used to. And so I think when people see a wild animal, it doesn't maybe net register in their mind of like, okay, I'm going to interact with this animal for five to 10 minutes, but the impacts may be for an entire day or a month or, you know, this could impact this animal for the rest of its life. And yeah, that's so interesting that you say that, that, you know, I learned that if you're close enough or if you're doing something to change the behavior of the animal that it's doing in the moment, uh, the impact, it could be resting when it needs to rest. And if you're if you agitate it and move it, then it can't get its rest and it could cause pregnancy issues. It could cause all kinds of behavioral issues. Um, and I feel like people mean well, so maybe, uh, you know, we'll take this back. We're going to definitely write content about this and uh, do more education around the fact that if you're close enough to change the animal's behavior, you're too close. You know, you're, you, you have, and it's coming from a place where I feel like most people love animals and they want to interact with them because out of that love and compassion, they probably want to treat them as dogs and pet them. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, there's larger impact than after you drive away that that animal is disturbed. They can't exist the way it was going to. And there's just uh, maybe, and maybe it wasn't an issue 10 years ago when there wasn't as much visitation, but now it's a whole different problem where we just have such an increased uh, attendance at these parks that, you know, these are new issues that we have to handle, so. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it, I mean, it, part of it is just a factor that we're seeing so much more, you know, so such a greater increase in visitation and more people getting outside. I mean, the pandemic has definitely just accelerated that, you know, tenfold. Um, like I said, we really saw that here and around the parks. In, and I mean, Yellowstone had its busiest October ever. Um, and October is usually an off season month for us wow. here. So people are really, they are getting out. And I think you're right. Like people have good intentions. They want to interact with the animals because they love them and they, you know, they're excited to see them. But we also need to recognize that we are one human of many, many, many humans. And whatever you do, there's probably 50 other people that might do the same thing. And that cumulative effect. That's really what we're seeing is just the cumulative effect of interaction after interaction after interaction that, and sometimes that can lead to like habituation for certain species. 
Uh, for instance, here in Jackson, on the backside of the Elk Refuge, there's a road and there are bighorn sheep that spend the winter on Miller Butte. They, I mean, you can drive right up to them and, you know, they're just hanging out on the side of the road. They're pretty habituated at this point to people. Um, people even bike and, and walk on the road and uh, the sheep are pretty much, you know, just they don't really mind or, or they're not really bothered at all. But, you know, if somebody were to step off the road and head toward those sheep, then, yeah. you know, that would be a really big impact that, you know, may impact those, that particular animal or even the species as a whole. And, you know, not only are you impacting the species, but you might also be impacting other people's enjoyment of the animals as well. Yeah. Just the, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and just this past weekend, there was a, um, a video that came out of some people who were incredibly close to three bull moose. They were pretty small bull moose. They weren't, you know, they didn't have gigantic racks, but a bull moose is a bull moose. And no matter how small it is, it's still a big animal that could trample you. And these people were so close to these, they were actually sparring with each other. Um, and you know, it, it may seem like, oh, okay, I'm not having an impact on the animal, but you're right. If you were, if you were causing the animal to do anything other than what it would normally do, then you are impacting it. And I think there's a, there's a spectrum, like no matter what you're doing outside, if you're near wildlife, you're having an impact, you know, and yeah. there's a spectrum of, of impact there. Um, sure. We're finding and research is finding now that things that are faster and mechanized are the things that are really disruptive to wildlife. Um, okay. especially bigger wildlife like grizzly bears, um, mm -hmm. ATVs and snowmobiles and things like that. Even mountain bikes have become kind of a, a hot button issue too, because we're starting to see that wildlife really tend to avoid areas where there are mountain bikes, especially close to the trails. And, you know, um, the, the species, so you're having some kind of an impact, even if you're just a person out there walking, you know, you may yeah. be disturbing that animal a little bit, but the impacts are fewer and shorter lived when it's just kind of a person doing something rather than like a person plus some kind of a machine or something. Sure. And it's it really seems to be a factor too that we're finding now um, that impacts animals greater while you're at high speeds. And then also that impact tends to last longer as well. Okay. That's a really good point. I think that's where, um, we wanted to talk about transitioning to our next question is, you know, what is outdoor recreation's role and uh, its impact on wildlife, whether it's positive or negative, and what can the outdoor industry do to support and coexist with this wildlife? Is it, and I'm sure it's so regional, um, you know, there where you have issues, you're not gonna have issues in Moab or Sedona with some of these species because you're up on a rock, but in, some of these wooded areas and during some of the peak seasons. Uh, I guess, you know, it could be a really long list, but let's talk about some of the activities we're talking, you know, skiing, mountain biking. Uh, we intentionally don't have four by fours, ATVs, or any kind of motorized equipment on our website for that reason, because it's uh, speed, pollution, and noise factors. And, you know, we really believe in getting people active. But I personally um, have had interactions with wildlife that were a little too close of a call and I didn't feel comfortable with that not from my point of view but uh, realizing that there's a hundred other mountain bikers on the trail with me and I'm sure it's not a popular topic but there's probably a way to uh, mitigate you know uh, minimize our impact during our recreation time and what are 
what are some of the studies finding or how can we better interact? Is it, you know, dedicated areas for recreation of those better? Um, is there any data around that or science that's finding, you know, how can, how can recreation play a role into preserving and working and coexisting with, with wildlife? Yeah, I mean, recreationists uh, can 100% be conservationists. And, you know, like I said, there is a spectrum of use and we need to just all realize that when we are out there, we are having an impact. I mean, I hike with my dog and research has shown that dogs, even just on a trail, wildlife react to the smell and the sound and are going to be pushed further away from those trails just by the presence of a dog being there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think any of us that are outside can act like we don't have, you know, we have zero impact. It's just not true. <laughs> um, and so we, we really want to, I think every person needs to look at it for themselves and also do some research before you go to a place, you know, find out what are the species that are struggling there and are there, already laws or um, some kind of guidelines or rules in place to protect these species. Um, one really good example is that bighorn sheep in the Tetons, there's a very specific, very small population of bighorn sheep in the Teton mountain range. They are completely isolated. They don't migrate anymore because their migration routes have been cut off. There's only about 80 animals left. So 50 to 80 animals is the, is the current uh, estimate. Now, backcountry skiing has become very, very popular in Grand Teton National Park. And um, there are places. So, so what happened was the government agencies went, they mapped out areas of where the sheep are found. They mapped out areas where bighorn sheep habitat is really important. And then also sent GPS uh, devices up with skiers to see where, you know, where are the most popular ski routes and where are people um, really being found in the wintertime. Now, we, there's very clear areas where there's overlap, where skiers are found, and it's really key habitat for bighorn, species, bighorn sheep. In those areas, you know, I, I think we need to look at the personal responsibility. Like, do you as a human want to be a part of something that may be responsible for the extirpation of a very unique species? Um, like, we do live on this earth with other, with other things, you know, and, yeah. and I think all really need to think about what is our own personal impact how do we feel about that and how can we minimize that like you said if there are designated areas where uh recreation has already been set aside for you know we, we were like okay this area is going to be for mountain biking so this is where we're going to go but pushing these limits and like opening up more and more and more habitat to you know, more and more and more recreation. I mean, part of it, if you really go back to it and look at it on the underneath side, it's just that there are so many humans. Yeah. We, you know, we, there's a lot of us out there. And so yeah. uh, if there were 10 people and, you know, you had a hundred thousand acres, there probably isn't going to be much of an impact. But now if you have a million people in those same hundred thousand acres, you're going to have an impact. And as outdoor recreation, you know, our gear is getting better. It's, it's allowing us to stay out longer and to, you know, go further and higher and, and do more, um, which is great. Like, I, you know, I, I want to encourage, like, I, we certainly want to encourage people to get out and interact with nature. And we know that the, nature has so many healing properties for humans, but at the same time, we also just need to remember that there are other species living on this planet that also have a home and that is their home. Like you, you, perhaps getting, you know, 
a day's worth of skiing in, is that worth it that you are going to deprive an animal of their home? Um, or, you know, if you're, if that mountain bike ride that you're going to go on, is that worth it that you're going to disrupt an animal and they may never be there again? Um, so I think that each person just kind of has to like look within themselves and, and really think about that and think about how, you know, how they feel about it. And do you want to be a contributing member of conservation toward these areas so that we have them for future generations? Or do you want to be a part of the problem? Right. And how was, as you're traveling around and maybe in our case, maybe a lot of people travel to new destinations. Um, is there a national voice for these um, areas that says like, Hey, this is a critical habitat and that we can kind of point people to, or is it all pretty bifurcated and spread out between, you know, states like organizations like yours trying to make the impact in small individual places. Like what's the best way for someone to do that research and see what, hey, I'm going mountain biking here. I'm going backcountry skiing here. What's the impact? Um, but what, what are the best practices on like how to go go search for that? That's a good question. I mean, I'm, unfortunately, I, I wish there was kind of a centralized database of that information, but I don't think there is. I think it is more small local organizations that are focused on specific species, um, you know, like grizzly bears, Canada lynx, um, black-footed ferret, uh, you know, the desert tortoise, uh, all those species that are kind of struggling. And, and I think, you know, those are probably, it's not that other species don't also matter, but I think to be as particularly aware of if there is a species that's kind of hanging on by a thread, um, yeah. you know, like the desert tortoise, for example, they're just running out of room to be able to exist. And so just being extra mindful of where you're recreating and, um, with the impact that you're having on their habitat is, is really important. I think, you know, before you go somewhere, check and see if there are any local wildlife nonprofits and what kind of work they do. And, and usually most national parks have really good information on their websites about sure. different um, that may be endangered or threatened in that are, you know, in the park boundaries and um, in the surrounding habitat as well. So I think it's just a matter of, yeah, just doing a little research and finding out ahead of time. And then, um, and then also just, you know, I don't know, maybe not pushing it further than you think you should. You know, I, I think that yeah. uh, we there there just needs to be places for animals to exist that are not impacted by humans. And, sure. you know, we if we're going to have those species here, they just need that kind of area. Um, yeah. Especially so the really. Species. Uh, on that spectrum, I suppose if you're going out and you're taking a trip to Jackson or you're going to some of these really remote wilderness outdoor areas, but there's dense population of wildlife, uh, I would say first, you know, if you can avoid a snowmobile tour, try snowshoeing, uh, avoid a four-wheeler and try hiking or, uh, you know, another activity that is still going to give you the adrenaline rush, still going to give you the enjoyment, but it's not as impactful. And... Uh, I would say like, just make your way down that path of like, okay, what's the next thing that I can do? And it's different for everyone. I feel like, you know, for somebody that's hiking, how can I maybe hike quietly or not play music out loud? Uh, and that could be a very small thing that could have an impact. And, you know, I think you have, you said it perfectly that we all have to look at ourselves and say, where am I and how can you get a little bit better? So maybe my kids can see the same thing and enjoy it the same way I'm enjoying it today. 
because I think we all, again, I think we mean well, we want to go to these places that are really remote, but do we want to stop that at our generation or do we want to maybe pass that on for just even one more generation at this rate, that would be even a huge win. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if it's kind of sad to think about like, you know, our kids and, or their, you know, our children's children, will they have the same access that we do to these untouched places? And we know how healing that is for humans to be out in that. And so, yeah, it's really sad to think about depriving future generations of that for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, Kristen, is there anything that you feel like we're not, we haven't covered or some issues um, that, you'd like to share or leave people with? Um, I think, it, you know, it, I really the message I want to drive home, you know, we certainly don't want to be preachy or, or I mean, we don't want to preach to the choir because those people are already on board. Uh, you know, we just really want to educate people about thinking a little bit outside of yourself and, you know, just recognizing that you're a piece of something much larger and um, unfortunately there are a lot of humans um, and you know, we're, we're squeezing these places more and more and more. Um, the Gritty Olson ecosystem is a great example of that. Like we can either make this a place of a shining example of how to coexist with wildlife and to be able to interact with nature in positive ways where it doesn't impact nature as much, or, you know, we can just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and squeezing it more and more and more until finally it's gone. And Unfortunately, when these wild places go, it's really difficult to get them back. You know, it's it's it takes decades to to get that natural state back in order. And you know, humans are a part of the ecosystem. We we are not separate from it. We're dependent upon it as much as you know. You may not seem like that in your daily life, but we are. And so, yeah, I think just each person just really needs to think about what. What does it mean to them to be able to get out in that nature? And do you want to, you know, make sure that that's there and really do something to protect it? Um, I did. I, I've spoken with several local conservationists who have done this for, you know, 40, 50 years. And and the one thing that I heard over and over from them is that it, recreationists used to be the loudest voices for protecting wildlife and wilderness, and they feel like that has changed a little bit. And you know, I, I don't, that's not to blame people. I just want to offer that perspective of somebody that has been around and done this for a while. They're starting to realize that like people have become a little bit selfish and it seems like, you know, what's in this for me is somehow the only thing that people think. Um, so, you know, if, if you do care about nature and you enjoy recreating out there, I would just say get involved somehow, whether that's speaking up, um, contacting your legislators, really doing, you know, donating to a nonprofit that helps to protect wild places and wildlife. There's many things you can do. Just give back somehow if you enjoy being out there as well. Cause it's, it's really all, up to all of us. You know, it's no yeah. one's, no one's coming, <laughs> no one's coming to help us. You know, we got to do this ourselves. So, yeah. and, and I, I, I'm, it's, it excites me to think about recreationists once again, being this like really strong voice for conservation and um and like blazing a path for you know here's how we do this and here's how we interact with nature as a human species um in the correct way so that nature is not hurt by it but that we are enhancing it somehow 
Well, that gives me a lot of hope because um, it's good to hear that, you know, 40 or 50 years ago that the recreationalists were the voice and they were leading the charge. And hopefully we can do a small part in taking that back and, you know, may, going back to those, uh, those things that are selfless. Because what we all love about recreating in nature is the nature itself. And, and that's maybe just a reminder, that small reminder is what we're out here for is what we love is what we want to preserve and not love it to death. Um, for anyone listening, I absolutely loved Wyoming wildlifeadvocates.org's wildlife guide. So please go check that out. It is super adorable. The hand-drawn uh, animals, it seems like, and you know, uh, listen to, to subscribe to their email newsletter, learn about topics that are coming up. And if you're in Wyoming and in Yellowstone and find yourself enjoying the wildlife around you, just know that there's people like Kristen behind the scenes working every day, working hard to preserve this for us. So please uh, go on, support their work, write that handwritten letter. I know we will and donate to them. And again, just be aware of your impact and where you're recreating and get outside as much as possible because if you don't love nature, you're definitely not gonna work towards preserving it. But when you're out recreating in nature, please do um, be a little bit more mindful. Hey there, adventure seekers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Adventure Travel with Trip Outside. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to stay up to date on where we travel to next. If you felt inspired to travel, go to tripoutside.com. It's the fastest way to book outdoor adventures all in one place.